sermon text today be John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Let's pray. Father, we come now to your word. And when it comes to the preaching of your word, no one in this room needs to hear a word from me. We all desperately need to hear a word from you. And you've given us your word. You've revealed yourself in scripture. And so as we open this holy text, I pray that you would open our eyes. I pray that you would open our hearts. I pray that you would open our minds. Help us to behold your glory. And I pray that you would change us from the inside out so that we would look more like your son. Increase our joy and our hope in you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we are spending the next few weeks in our Advent series focusing on the theme of hope. We kicked that off last week by turning to Isaiah 59 and considering the promise of hope. And this week, we are turning to John's gospel to consider the origin of hope. You know, I touched on it last week, but I think it's worth repeating that hope is comprised of of two parts. We first hope for something, and we hope in something. And we, we know that hope is only true and lasting and transformative in our lives when the object of our hope delivers the content of our hope. And so I also shared last week that all of our surface level hopes, all of the things that we're hoping for in this world, um, actually have a basis in this deep heart level hope. And it's the hope for a better and new world. When you think about it, you, you hope you know, to be cured from a disease. You hope for a world where there actually is no disease. All of us deep down are not just hoping for God, we're hoping for God's place. You see, that's a theme in the Old Testament. It's God's people hoping for God's place, the promised land. And the ultimate promised land is the new heavens and the new earth. And during the Advent season, while we focus on the first coming of Jesus, we're longing for his second coming because it will be on that day when heaven does fully and finally meet earth and we enjoy the world for which we were originally created for and the world for which Christ died So the reason we're turning to John's gospel is because around Christmas time, most of the time, we focus on Matthew's account and we focus on Luke's account. Now, Mark, he just kind of jumps right into, um, you know, the life and ministry of Jesus. He doesn't really talk about the original uh, texts or the original accounts of Jesus's birth. And so when Matthew and Luke came along, they 
bring in all of those details. And then John, um, he sees those accounts and he says, I'm going to take an entirely different approach. And, you know, a lot of us in this room, we're really familiar with all of the accounts surrounding Jesus' birth. And it's probably not because, especially if you grew up in church, it's probably not because you read the Bible all the time. It was probably because you were in those wonderful Christmas plays, all right? Oh, yeah, I see some immediate you know, kind of smiles right there, some noddings. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. The reason you know all the details and the accounts of Jesus' birth is not because you've memorized scripture, it's because you had to memorize lines in a play, you know? Um, I know that growing up in eastern Kentucky, we used to do that all the time. Now, of course, you know, I, I was in the, our church's nursery, and I grew up in the church, and my grandfather was a deacon in the church, but I was always the kid who refused to be in the plays. Like, my parents had to take me kicking and screaming, and then they had to force me to memorize the lines. I desperately hated the Christmas plays, which is why I think one year, they actually made my sister and I play Mary and Joseph. Um, which, of course, did nothing to dispel all of those uh, rumors of Eastern Kentucky in the way. <laughs> we're all just one big family in, uh, in Eastern Kentucky. But we've had lots of counseling since then. It's, we're, I, tell, I promise we're all okay. We're, we're fine. We're fine, I promise. But, but we do, honestly, we, we get bogged down with all of the details of Jesus' birth. And when you think about it, I want you to consider all of the people and the places that just Matthew and Luke give us in regards to the events surrounding Jesus' birth. You have Zechariah and Elizabeth. You have Joseph and Mary, of course. You have Caesar Augustus. You have Quirinius. You have Herod. You have the shepherds and the angels. You have the wise men. You have the chief priests and the scribes. You even have Simeon. You, you have references to Abraham and David. And then, of course, Matthew chapter one, the long, lengthy genealogy with all of these connections. And then, of course, the places you have Bethlehem and Nazareth and Judea and Galilee and Jerusalem and Egypt and Syria. And we, we end up knowing all of the events surrounding Jesus' birth. And I'm afraid it's really easy to forget the simplicity of what Jesus' birth is. In the midst of all of these people and places and miraculous events, we forget this simple yet nearly unbelievable truth. We kind of take it for granted, but it's, it's, it's almost unbelievable. The simple truth of Christmas is God came down to us. God came down to us. So while Matthew and Luke, they give us all of these details, the Apostle John teaches us that the gospel stretches much further back in the first century AD. John teaches us that Christmas hope, that the Christmas story stretches back much further than even the prophets who foretold the birth of Jesus. John teaches us that the birth of Jesus and that Christmas story and the hope that it brings stretches all the way back, even further back than Abraham and Adam and Eve. The Christmas story actually began before the universe began. And so, you know, while we're focusing on hope, one thing we're going to look at this morning is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, to show us that the hope of Christmas is rooted in eternity. The hope that you can have and hold 
this Christmas season was prepared for you before the sun existed. And so I want us to do that. I want us to look at John chapter one, verses one through three. And there are three simple truths that I want to share with you. You notice something this morning. You don't have notes. So I'm challenging you this morning to try to experience not necessarily the sermon, but experience the word. So I, I want your eyes focused on the text itself, and then I want you to hear the points. I'll repeat them. So if you're a note taker and you're really frustrated right now, I'll try to repeat as much as I possibly can. And for those of you who are really frustrated right now, I will email the notes later. Don't worry. We have a passage in a sentence. We have all of the notes. You're, you're going to be fine. Okay, I promise. We'll get those notes to you later in the week. But I do. I want us this, just this Christmas season to be a little bit simpler and Don't view this as a classroom and I'm your lecturer. Instead, I want to just point you to this great Christmas hope that we have. So I have three points here, three things I want to share with you. The first is the hope of Christmas is found outside of us. The second truth I want to share is that the hope of Christmas is an invitation to share in divine love. And then thirdly and finally, the hope of Christmas is that the creator comes to us. So... The first truth I want to share with you is the hope of Christmas is found outside of us. So I'm going to read these three verses again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So first, Jesus, the baby who was born in Bethlehem, is outside of creation. So when you think about biblical cosmology, which is basically just the the world of the Bible and, and the way that the Bible writers tell us the world works, there are two levels to it. You have creator and you have created. You have creator and you have creature. You have created and you have creation. And there, is, there are no other levels. So you are either the creator or you are the creation. Now you might be a plant or you might be a dog or you might be a person. If you're one of Barton's dogs, you're probably a little better off than some people. But, um, <laughs> sorry bro. Um, but you're either creator or you are creation. And something that John tells us right here at the beginning, which is really startling, The man Jesus Christ, who was born and who was walking around on the earth, he is not creation. He's not part of the created order, even though he was a man. And every other man is part of the creation. Every other woman, every other boy and girl is part of the creation. But John's telling us that Jesus is different. He is outside of creation. He is creator. He himself was not created. And if you notice the language of, of John here, I, he is intentional because John knows the Bible. And so when he says, in the beginning, what is he drawing you back to? For those of you that have read your Bible, or probably those of you who have never read the Bible, you can probably say, where, where, is, where does that make your mind jump to immediately? Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here John is saying, in the beginning was the word. And just as a spoiler alert for those of you, let's jump down to verse 14, just so you're clear on the context of what John is saying here. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then down to verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received uh, 
grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so when John is using uh, the Greek word logos, and he is translated as word, he is referring to Jesus. And so Jesus of Nazareth, this, this man who was born and he lived and he died and he rose again, John is telling us right from the beginning that Jesus was not created, Jesus is the creator. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, the word. Okay, so we see that, that parallel. And this is something that's just so astounding. And I just want you to marvel at this for a moment. Before the beginning. So like, you know, in, in Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, God created. That doesn't mean that, that God, you know, did not exist. And then all of a sudden, God existed and so did the rest of the universe. In the beginning, God means that God is before the beginning. In the beginning, God did something because God was already there. You see, everything that he created after that point by speaking did not exist before. Every single part of creation fully depends on God's power in creating it. And so Jesus, too, based on this language especially, in the beginning was the word, he is before the beginning. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Mary? You know, like, you think back to all your Christmas plays, think back to my sister being Mary and me being Joseph and that weird situation we had, and, and the baby that would be held there, and we think about the details of that. The baby is God. The baby existed before the world. And so, here's something I want you to think about in terms of your salvation. Since Jesus is outside of this world, the only way for him to, for him to save us, he has to enter this world. He has to come down to us. And so here's what that tells you. The world can't fix itself. There are no answers to the problems of the world within the world. And there are no answers to the problem within your own heart, within yourself. Or in any book you can read, or from any other person you can meet. We are broken and there's only one solution. So, you know, we, all, we know this, but I swear, I think every single time there's a political season, we always forget it. You know? Because there are problems in our country, and there are problems in our city, and and th there needs to be some answers to that. And we do need to have, you know, responsible people in office that are going to make wise decisions to help us have a healthy society. But that's a far cry from putting your hope in these politicians to change the world in a way that only Jesus can. And so we fall into a pit when we put our hope in any politician or any leader to do for us what only God can because they can't fix all of the problems. The best rulers and leaders in the history of the world, guess what? They're dead and the problems are still here. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, they sent the entire world into chaos. The order that was there when God originally created the world is thrown into chaos because sin enters the world and messes the whole thing up. And the same turmoil exists inside of you and me. And if you look for a solution in yourself, whether it's through moral or spiritual or religious performance, 
trying to improve yourself to become a better person, trying to exert some discipline in your life. All of those are good things. I want, I want all of us to be better people, better citizens. But it can't save you from your sin. That can only come from God. It can only come from someone who is outside of the system. So you see there is either creator or creation. Well, guess what? Creation is broken and messed up now. And that means every single person and every single institution is broken and messed up. And so it can't save you because it can't save itself. Another person can't save you because he or she cannot save themselves. But Jesus can. Do you know why Jesus can? Not because he's just a man who was really special. Because if Jesus was just a man who was really special, he would be a man who was really special who had sin in his heart. But Jesus is not of this world. He is the eternal God who came down to us, who condescended and came down to us. He entered creation to save it. There's a beautiful quote by Tim Keller I want to share with you. He says, A God who was only holy would not have come down to us in Jesus Christ. He would have simply demanded that we pull ourselves together, that we be moral and holy enough to merit a relationship with him. A deity that was an all-accepting God of love would not have needed to come to earth either. This God of the modern imagination would have just overlooked sin and evil and embraced us. Neither the God of moralism nor the God of relativism would have bothered with Christmas. But God is holy. And God is gracious. And so because of his holiness, he doesn't just let us off the hook. But because of his grace, Jesus, who we're going to get to in a second to see that he was not just God, but he was with God. But Jesus, before the beginning existing in a perfect Trinitarian relationship of love and power and goodness and light, he entered not just a human world, because, you know, John Murray, he he shares that even if Jesus had entered Eden, the perfect world, it would have been a step down for, for him to enter the human realm, even a perfect human realm. But Jesus didn't enter a perfect human realm. Jesus entered utter darkness. God came down to us to save us from ourselves. And the only hope that you have of salvation, of that perfect world that we're all really longing for, God has to come down and do something because the answer to all of those problems is not found in yourself. So here's what I want to encourage you with. If you think that you have to dress yourself up in order for God to accept you, I pray that you would see the beauty of this. That baby Jesus that we celebrate is the eternal God who intentionally chose to come and rescue you from your sin. Because he loves you. He's not waiting on you to be really good. He left perfection to come into this brokenness to redeem it and restore it. And he does the same for you and me. The hope of Christmas is found outside of us. But secondly, the hope of Christmas is an invitation to share in divine love. The hope of Christmas 
is an invitation to share in divine love. So Jesus is not just outside of creation. Jesus is also before creation. Jesus is God and Jesus is with God. Let's look at the, the text together. In the beginning was the word and these, these two phrases here. And the word was with God and the word was God. Okay, now, this is something that you may have overlooked in the past, but John is giving us some early roots of Trinitarian theology. And so if you're unfamiliar with Christian theology, we uh, are a monotheistic religion, which means that we believe in one God, but we believe that that one God exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And John, even though he doesn't give a full description of that here, he is telling us two things, that first, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Now, we would think naturally and this is why this the doctrine of the trinity is so perplexing and it's so mysterious and honestly it's a little bit philosophically troubling because it doesn't make sense that the word if there's only one god he either is god or he is with god that that's what seems to make sense but john tells us that the word both is god and is with god now that's where I want to share a few of these, these creeds with you because I believe they do an excellent job in describing this in language that is much clearer than I could share. So I'm going to share from the Nicene Creed. You can look that up later, Nicene Creed. It says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. Okay, there, there's more to the Nicene Creed, but that's, that's what's important for us this morning. So the affirmation here that we need to to see is that Jesus is God himself and he is with God but what I want you to think about just practically with this the fact that Jesus is with God tells us something about the Godhead that before anything was made before there was the world before there were people before the beginning we have God we have the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit one God three persons existing in a perfect relationship of divine love. Perfect. So we, we teach this with the kids all the time. We walk through these deep doctrinal truths and, and we share. God did not create the world because he was lonely. God was not lonely. Father, Son, and Spirit, perfectly self-sufficient. Perfectly happy. A relationship of perfect love. They didn't need anything. They didn't, the world was not created because they were bored and they, they just needed something to do. We, we say that God created the world for his glory, but also we can say that God created the world as an overflow of that loving relationship within the Godhead, within Father, Son, and Spirit. The love is so strong that God chooses to create the world to share his love. And so 
Christmas is about relationship. Because you notice, when God creates Adam and Eve, what does he do? He enters into a covenant relationship with them. He didn't have to do that. He could have created the world and just let let humans do whatever humans would do, you know? But he creates the world and God enters into a relationship with them because the whole point is love. The whole point, the whole existence of the world, the whole point is love. You have God in a perfect loving relationship overflowing and sharing that love with his creation. And they don't trust that love. And they reject that love. And they rebel against that love. And, you know, the rest is history. The whole world goes into chaos. And so when God chooses to redeem humanity, he doesn't just do it to pardon them of their guilt. He doesn't just do it to pardon you of your guilt. He redeems humanity to reconcile humanity to himself. A relationship has been broken and he mends it through the cross of Christ. And that begins with the incarnation of Jesus. So Christmas hope is all about relationship and reconciliation. When Jesus comes, we're seeing that Jesus is the eternal word who comes down to us. But he doesn't just do it to fix all our problems and then go away. Jesus comes down to us to restore the broken relationship between God and man. And here's what I want you to see. Since Jesus, as we've seen in the creeds and we've seen in scripture here, is both completely God and completely man, what do you see in the person of Jesus? You have two natures in one person. You have a divine nature and you have a human nature in one person. Jesus is not 50% God and 50% man. He is 100% God and 100% man. So what do you see even in the person of Jesus that John is sharing with us here? You see heaven meeting earth. You see God reconciled with man even in the person of Jesus, which, which makes that ultimate reconciliation even possible. Because Jesus had to become a man in order to represent us. Adam, as our representative, failed. And because of his sin, Paul tells us, we are all guilty of sin. And so Jesus comes, takes on flesh, and becomes our representative in the flesh. He lives a perfect, sinless life. He bears our shame, And he bears our guilt and he bears God's wrath against both on the cross. And then he rises again in victory over sin and death in our place. And the whole point is the reconciliation of a broken relationship. The whole point is to invite you and bring you in to that loving dance of the Trinity where you have Father, Son, and Spirit perfectly and eternally in a loving relationship. And Christmas is God the Son coming down to bring you into that relationship. And, you know, this, this illustration has been shared so many times with so many different pastors, I don't even know really the origin of it. But in thinking about these two truths, that first, the hope of Christmas is found outside of us, and that Jesus comes down to us. And second, that the hope of Christmas is an invitation to share in divine love, where Jesus comes down to us to reconcile that relationship. If you're trying to earn God's favor by being 
Even a good Christian, right? Like you're claiming to know Jesus and you're trying to earn his favor by reading the Bible a lot, by attending church services a lot and doing Christian things. I want you to know that that's completely unnecessary, let alone impossible for you to merit that favor. But, you know, there's, there's the illustration where you have God at the top of the mountain and you have all of the other world religions, right? And a lot of people may think that the pluralistic view that, you know, all of those religions basically are the same. They're just kind of some subtle differences. And so it doesn't really matter what path you take up the mountain. It's just we're all going to end up at the same place. We're all going to end up with God. But here's how Christianity is so unique. And this is one thing that just has convinced me of the reasonableness of Christianity. And one of the reasons that I believe in Jesus is because only Christianity says that the God who is at the top of the mountain isn't just waiting on you to climb up through whatever the uh, religious system tells you to do. The God who is on top of the mountain comes down from the mountain to where we are at the base. And he brings us to the top of the mountain. He does for us what we could never do for ourselves. So our hope this Christmas is rooted in this eternal beautiful trinitarian relationship and so i know you know this but i want you to hear it jesus was born because god loves you it almost feels weird saying that and hearing that but god the son entered humanity entered our world The creator entered the creation because he loves you. Not just because he's coming to right a wrong. He personally loves you. He personally stoops down from his glory and enters a state of utter humiliation. I mean, the life Jesus lived would be humiliating for anybody But for God, come on. He enters a state of humiliation because he loves you. And so, just as a practical thing to pull from this, just really simply, Christmas is others-centered. You know? It's others-centered. God did not have to do this. Jesus didn't have to do this. The word did not have to become flesh. He did not have to come down. He chose to do it. Because he's others-centered. He's focused on others. And so Christmas for us then should be others-centered. This season, even though we are doing things with other people and for other people, we're buying gifts and we're having dinners and we're getting together with family, isn't it so easy to just become consumed with yourself? It's so ironic. It's so ironic what we're celebrating is that God came down to us to bring us to himself, even though he didn't have to, and then we would think about ourselves first. So I wanna wanna encourage you to be others-centered, and we're not gonna read it, but I do wanna encourage you. I want you to write it down, or if you have the memory of Mr. Tommy back there, I want you just to remember it. Um, I want you to go to John chapter 17. Go to John chapter 17 later today. We're not going to read it right now. But I want to encourage you maybe this afternoon to read that. 
not even going to spoil it for you if you've never read it. I want you to experience it for the first time if you've never read it, where Jesus is praying to his father, and he's like, hey, we had this kind of relationship, and that's what I want for them, and that's what I'm bringing them into. The hope of Christmas is an invitation to share in divine love. And then our third and final truth, the hope of Christmas. So first, the hope of Christmas is found outside of us. Second, the hope of Christmas is an invitation to share in divine love. And then third, the hope of Christmas is that the creator comes to us. So verse three, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. It's it's an awkward rendering there, but you know that's that's the way it is in the Greek, and it's actually it's actually pretty correct in in the ESV um, at least. And most translations do a really good job of that. It's just kind of an awkward wording, but the point is very clear, right? It's just this emphasis: all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So you see the distinction again. You have Creator or creation, one of the two. And even though Jesus is a man and it seems like he fits into this category, John tells us something that Matthew and and Luke don't tell us, and that's that, no, Jesus himself is the creator. So Jesus isn't just outside of creation. He isn't just before creation. Jesus himself is the originator of creation. So, you know, Colossians 1, 15 through 17, if you're familiar, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the originator of creation. And so again, just marvel at this for a moment. When you think of baby Jesus this season, and you think of Mary carrying Jesus in her womb and holding Jesus, the baby she's holding is her maker, her creator. I mean, can you imagine if you were living at that time and you came over to, you know, you, you signed up for the perfect, you know, or whatever it is, the signing up to take meals to, to people in our faith family who have had children and you signed up to bring Mary and Joseph something, you know, the baby's been born and, and you guys are going over there and, oh, let me hold the baby. And you're holding the one who created you. Imagine later in Jesus' life, you have the disciples, maybe this will change the way you read the Gospels. You have the disciples, and they're sitting on a boat, you know, and they're on the water, and they're looking out, and they, whether it's night or day, and they see the sun, or they see the moon, or they see the stars, and the guy sitting next to them on the boat made it. He made it. They didn't get that. That's why they were so, you know, we look at them, we're like, man, those guys were, were dumb. They just thought Jesus was another dude, you know, like... We give them a hard time, but we talk to our friends like that all the time. Like, dude, you, don't, you, you have no idea what you're talking about. You're talking crazy right now. They didn't know he was God. But we have that benefit of, of reading these accounts and marveling at the fact that the ground the disciples walked on with Jesus was spoken into existence by Jesus. So I want us to consider, since, you know, John uses this specific word to describe Jesus, 
it's important for us to think about for a minute. In the beginning was the word. And, and I think about this a lot. You know, the, the writers of scripture, yes, they're writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but they're also choosing their own words, you know? Have you ever thought, why did John choose to write the word, word, to describe Jesus? In the beginning was the word. I mean, what's up with that? Why, why did he use that? And I know what some of you would say, because God told him to. And like, that's just your, your cop out for everything. God told him to, so he did it. Well, let's think about it for a second. Why though? Why, why, why did he use word to describe Jesus? Now, the Greek word for that is logos. Logos, and we're going to get to that in a second. But I think there are two reasons. There's, there's the biblical reason, and then there's the cultural reason. So we're going to consider just the Old Testament itself, and then we're going to consider just the culture that John was living in when he wrote this, the, the Greco-Roman culture. So first, biblically, why or what does it mean that Jesus is the Word? There are three things here. So first, it means that Jesus is the agent of creation. Because in the Old Testament, whenever God's word is used, a lot of times it's used to talk about God's powerful act in creating the world. He created the world by the power of his word. Psalm 33, verse 6, for example. Secondly, God's word in the Old Testament was an agent of revelation. So it would be by the word of the Lord that God would bring new revelation into the world. So when we consider Jesus, he isn't just the agent of creation, but he's the agent of revelation that in Jesus we see God truly and fully. Jesus reveals God to us in ways that no one else could because he is God. So uh, agent of creation, agent of revelation, and then thirdly, an agent of salvation. So in the Old Testament, it would be God's word that would bring deliverance to the people. And so when John says, in the beginning was the word, and then later when he says the word became flesh, he's like, Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. And it is in Jesus that God brings full and final salvation. So, so those are the biblical reasons. But then there are some cultural reasons as well. And so at the time, you know, first century AD, around that time, there were a lot, and, and then even in like, you know, 300 or so years before that, um, the landscape in uh, the Greco-Roman world when it comes to philosophy is there was a lot of debate over what the logos was. So logos can mean a few things, but a couple of the things it means is logic or reason. There are even some that would translate this as in the beginning was reason because logos can be translated that way. And so at that time, you had all of these different philosophers who are considering what is the logos or the reason or the logic or the purpose of life itself. What's the purpose of life? What is the logos of life? And so you have all these philosophers who are thinking and writing, and you have, uh, just as a couple examples, you have the Stoics, and they say, they taught that the logos was this rational principle. It was this philosophical notion or this philosophy that you could hold, that you could use by which to live your life and base your life on. So the logos is basically philosophy, 
And then you have uh, Philo, which is an awesome name for a philosopher, by the way. He was a Jewish thinker, um, Philo. And in his, his view of the Logos, uh, he went a step further, and he said that the Logos isn't a rational principle, but the Logos itself is this ideal world or this ideal person. So it's not, not, a, not an actual person, but the ideal man. You know, who every single man should be striving to be. That's what the logos is. So your reason for life is to become this ideal person. And it's to long for this ideal world where you could one day live. And so it's interesting. John, writing on the background of this philosophical debate, it's almost as if he intentionally chooses the word logos to refer to Jesus to come in and end the debate. He says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was logos, the reason, the purpose. So for John, the logos or the purpose or the reason for life was not any kind of philosophy. It wasn't any kind of theology. It wasn't this you know, ideal world or this ideal person. For John, he says, no. You're looking for the right thing, but you haven't found him yet. The Logos is a specific person. Jesus the Christ. Jesus is the Logos. John is telling us that Jesus is the reason for life. He is the reason for life. So I want to ask you a question. Is Jesus the reason for your life? Is he the reason for your life? I'm not asking you if your doctrine is the reason for your life. Because you may think Jesus is the reason for your life, but really it's just your theology. Really it's just your doctrine. Or really it's just being religious. Or really it's just coming to church. Is Jesus the reason that you wake up in the morning and put your shoes on and go to work? You know, we have multiple reasons for which we live. We got to eat, right? We got to pay bills. We got to earn a living. But what's the ultimate purpose? What's the ultimate reason for your life? Because John tells us the reason for everything is Jesus. Because in Jesus, we have God, the creator of the universe, who comes down to us to reconcile us to God so that we can be a people who live as he originally created us to be, imperfectly now. But if you're connected to Jesus, you can live as God originally created humanity to be because in Jesus we see true deity and true humanity. And so when you base your life on him, then you are transformed. Not just when you're trusting in him for salvation later, but when you are trusting in his provision now, knowing that baby Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things, even your breath in this very moment. So I, I want to encourage you. Consider whether or not Jesus is the reason for your life.
Because when he is the reason for your life, you will find a hope that can never end. A lasting and true hope that will be a light in your darkest, deepest night. When you're basing your life on things that will fade away, the hope that you have in them will fade away. But when you base your hope on Jesus, the eternal God who took on flesh to bring you back to himself, that hope will never die because he will never die again. And all who are in him, though they will die, they will also live forever. So the hope of Christmas is not found in you or any of your spiritual works. It's found outside of you. The hope this Christmas that you can have is an invitation to share in God's love. Would you share in his love? And then would you live your life in such a way that you would bring others in to share in that love as well? And then finally, the hope of Christmas is that your creator comes to you. Your creator comes to you to save you from the thing you cannot escape, whatever it is, whatever sin that you cannot escape right now, Jesus came to set you free from it. So walk in that freedom even today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for sending your son. Jesus, thank you so much for coming down to us. You had to come down to us not just because you're in a place that is above us, but because you are God and you are perfect and you didn't need us for anything and we sinned against you. And yet you entered the broken world that we caused to fix it and to fix us. But you didn't just come to pardon us of our guilt, you came to reconcile us to yourself. God, may we feel your presence more than ever this Christmas. May we fully and truly appreciate that we who have turned from sin and trusted Jesus are in a loving relationship with a God who has been in a loving relationship for eternity. Thank you for sharing that divine, eternal love with us. Father, help us now to live as your witnesses in this city and to share this love, not just with one another in this room, but with those the world has rejected. Because we should have been rejected by you. We were weak and we were filthy you came down to us and you brought us in you've adopted us as your children help us to share that love with others and father may we continue to marvel at the fact that Jesus our God and creator became a crying baby to one day represent us in his sinless life and in his substitutionary death so that we could have forgiveness of 
wretched sin so that we could be made new, so that we could hope of a world where there is no more sickness, where there is no more death, where there is no more sin. God, we long for that day and it is made possible because you first came down to us. Help us to walk in the power of the gospel this Christmas. Help us to relish and savor the love that you have for us this Christmas. And Father, I pray that you would increase our hope, that it would be full, that it would be true because it's in you. If there's anything within us that we are trying to cling to or we're betting our life on, help us to cast it away because Jesus is the logos. He is the word. He is the reason for life. Empower us to base our lives on him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We encourage you to stand when you respond in song.